Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. The second captain's world service. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Well, there's like there's indoor training about you going on with Gareth here yesterday. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Just yeah. handy come winter. And two pitches. Wow. Two pitches here, and then three out, the three out the road. Three out the road. Yeah, yeah. Wow. How many members you have? I don't know. Thank you. We're just outside the the clubhouse now. Siobhan, you might tell us what we're what we're looking at here yes this is a the club where it happened my father was murdered um, you can see the plaque on the wall was dedicated in his memory by the members of the club the year after he after he was killed um, they also rededicated the pitch to the park Sean de Brun around the same time and here we have the clubhouse where um, on that night of the 12th of May 1997 daddy would have left the club meeting locked the door after putting security alarm on, but drove his car to the entrance to the gate to lock up the club gate when at that stage, sadly, he was abducted um, and murdered. How different is it as we stand today to what it would have been like in 1997? The clubhouse still remains the same. Um, Obviously, the entrance has changed, probably for the better because you don't have that memory of the actual wooden gate that it would have been there at the time. The entrance is open, so anyone can actually drive into the car park. Um, still brings back memories about the particular spot where it all happened. It's difficult at times. Nobody has to lock the gates anymore. Yeah. Nobody has to lock the gates. Hey everyone, welcome to a special edition of the Second Captain's Podcast. Owen and Murph talking to you from Balahi in South County Derry. Hey Murph. Hey Owen. We are making this one available to everybody because it's important this story is shared as widely as possible. We're standing at the entrance to Pork Sean de Bruin, Balahi Wolf Tones GA Club. It was from this spot on the 12th of May 1997 that Sean Brown, the club chairman, 
was locking up for the night when he was abducted by a loyalist gang and driven 10 miles to Randallstown, where he was shot six times. His body was later found there beside a burnt-out car. Nobody's ever been charged with his murder, and the initial police investigation has been criticised in a number of investigations and reviews over the years. An inquest into his death finally opened in March last year, but progress has been painfully slow, and with the Legacy Act recently being passed into law by the British government, all open inquests into deaths that took place during the conflict must be completed by May 1st this year. So the fear is that time is running out, and Sean's family will never get the justice that they have doggedly pursued down the years. We're here to meet with members of the family, Sean's daughter Siobhan and his grandson Damon. Yeah, and Damon is a grandson, as you say, of Sean, uh, and it's you know perhaps an indication of kind of the, the intergenerational nature of this fight for justice for Sean Brown. Uh, Damon's father, Damien, was centre-half back on the Blahy uh, team that played in the Ireland club final in 1995 against Kilmacud Crokes. Um, and, you know, in just one of these weird uh, kind of mind-blowing details that turns up in tragic cases like this, Sean Brown's death was actually 25 years to the day since Blahy became the first club to win the All-Ireland Club Championship in 1972. Uh, a divisional team from Kerry won the first ever playing of the All-Ireland Club Championship. But the first club to win the All-Ireland Club Championship was this club that we're standing he was, uh, in the grounds of. He was murdered 25 years to the day after to that. To the day after yeah. that, which is just uh, an incredible detail uh, to try and figure out. We're not the uh, the first guests to Balahi Wolfhounds this week. Uh, the Uchtaran Tuffa, the president-elect of the GA, Gerald Burns, uh, was here yeah. earlier this week uh, meeting with the family, uh, expressing an interest in the family and uh, Siobhan and, and Damon will tell us uh, you know, uh, trying to get an understanding of what maybe the GA community can do mm. uh, for Sean Brown and for his family and for uh, Blahy Wolf Tones as a club uh, in their quest for answers about this, this tragedy. Just to explain briefly, the Northern Ireland Troubles, to give it its full title, the Northern Ireland Troubles Legacy and Reconciliation Act is the British government's attempt to draw a line under the conflict. But it's such an unpopular piece of legislation that it's achieved the seemingly impossible task of uniting all the major parties in Stormont in opposition to it. Last Friday, it was confirmed that the Irish government has formally lodged a legal challenge in the European Court of Human Rights against the UK over the legislation. It's only the second time in the history of the two states that Ireland has taken a case against the UK. In 1978, the ECHR found against the UK in the Hooded Men case. And what the Brown family is going through right now, I hope today will put a human face on the torment that yeah. families like this are going through as a result of this legislation. This is also Heaney country. We're going to meet Siobhan and Damon at the Seamus Heaney home place. It's an arts centre situated between his two childhood homes in the area. Heaney was a friend of Sean Brown's and in paying tribute to him, Many years ago, he said, Sean represented something better than we have grown used to, something not quite covered by the word reconciliation, because that word has become a policy word, official and public. This was more like a purification, a release from what the Greeks called the miasma, the stain of spilled blood. Just some of the words of Seamus Heaney. You'll be hearing more of his words later on. Before we go to meet the family, you are going to hear from Des Fahey. Des is the barrister representing the family at the inquest, but in a previous life, he covered this story as a journalist and author who documented the experiences of GA members during the Troubles in his books, Death on a Country Road and How the GA Survived the Troubles. Des explains, first of all, what happened to Sean Brown on the 12th of May, 1997. The Taoiseach and opposition leaders have joined in condemnation of the murder of Sean Brown, the 61-year-old Catholic man whose body was found at Randallstown in County Antrim this morning. 
Police believe Mr. Brown was abducted from outside the Balahi GAA club in Derry as he was locking up. He'd been the club's chairman. The RUC say the killing had all the hallmarks of a sectarian murder. When you ask me to use the word condemnation, and it connotates many things in Northern Ireland, I would say to you it's despicable, it's evil, and it's wrong. And another family suffers needlessly. Now, is that enough for you? He was a gentleman, he was a man of the highest integrity. He was an instructor in the local government training centre in Balamina. He worked for the community and with the community. And I think it's a sad reflection on today's society when something like this can happen. Sean Brown was the chairman of the club and it had been a night on which there had been a league match. That's Balahi uh, had a league match in the Derry League. That was followed, as I understand it, by a committee meeting uh, Sean and his son were involved in the committee meeting. The committee meeting broke up. They were the two last people to leave the club. Uh, Sean Jr. left first, leaving his father to lock up the gates as he would have done night after night after night before that. Then it becomes unclear, but piecing together the facts that we do know, uh, he was abducted, uh, beaten, uh, placed in the boot uh, of his car. A convoy of cars then drove to an area a number of miles away where, uh, as far as we can ascertain, he was uh, shot six times in the head and the car was set on fire. You have written extensively about how just being a member of the GAA at this time could be dangerous, could could make you a target. Is it potentially just as simple as that, that he was seen as obviously being a member of the GAA and it happened because of that? The slightly strange thing is that by 1997, some of that had started to fall away in terms of the harassment of GAA members and officials. That was certainly a feature of my childhood and adolescence and was the feature and experience of huge numbers of uh, men and women connected to the GA in the North during that time. My sense is that it had started to fall away in terms of what I would term the low-level harassment of GA members because it was just considered to be less and less acceptable. Mm -hmm. This is around the time of a developing peace process of ceasefires, etc. So the low levels of harassment had fallen away to an extent but they were replaced by something much more deadly, which was the targeting of officials and the murder of officials. So it had gone from something that everyone within the GEA to some extent was experiencing to being particularly targeted against certain individuals. And they were invariably uh, officials in clubs in very much identifiable GEA areas and communities. This was a time, Des, we're talking 1997, the Good Friday Agreement came less than a year later. So, you know, you can be forgiven almost for thinking that we must have been getting close to peace at that time. And yet, clearly, these sort of 
murders were still taking place, the violence was still raging, the LVF were particularly active at this time. Yeah, and don't forget that within a year you had what I think is the single biggest loss of GEA life, which was in the Oma bomb, where multiple um, people who died in that bomb had connections to the GEA, either tangentially or directly. So uh, it was changing, but the GEA was still being targeted as part of what was called in the 90s, and it's a phrase that's fallen away a little bit, what was termed this pan-nationalist front. So you had an expression which was incredibly invidious that the GA was described as the IRA at play. And that was a hugely damaging and hugely dangerous uh, stick with which to beat the GAA and undoubtedly, undoubtedly led to murder of GAA members and officials. Why has nobody ever been charged with the murder of Sean Brown? Because of an insufficiency of evidence. That's always the explanation. There is an insufficiency of evidence uh, on the available evidence and that situation with the passage of time is unlikely to improve as compared to what it was at the time of the commission of the murder. That murder investigation, though, the initial murder investigation has been criticised, was described as incomplete and inadequate by the police ombudsman in 2004. I understand the family received an apology from the PSNI in 2022 on the 25-year anniversary. And a damages claim uh, was successfully prosecuted in relation to the deficiencies in the uh, RUC and then PSNI investigation. Uh, That uh, was certainly a landmark for them but uh, is not a substitute for the justice that they continue to seek in relation to the murder as a whole. They continue to seek it, and at the moment there's an inquest taking place, and it's ongoing, started in March last year, is that correct? What are the family looking to get at? I know you're limited in the specifics you can get into as to what's going on in, in, in this ongoing case, but what are the family trying to achieve through this inquest? At the minute... Given that the police investigations have been unsuccessful, the inquest mechanism is the only means by which the Browns will have any prospect of access to the truth and to justice in terms of what happened to Shaw. So uh, in the absence of anything else, the inquest is the mechanism that is now open to them. Uh, But it remains to be seen whether it is going to be sufficient for them to receive the the truth and the justice that they crave in relation to the murder. When you say it's essentially the best option available to them, but it's not necessarily the best option for getting that, that truth and that justice. No, the best option would have been a successful police investigation, the arrest, the interview, the charging and the prosecution of those who were responsible and those being brought before a court, those people being brought before a court. That, that is always the ideal. Uh, an inquest would, would follow in any event, mm. but would not be the primary means by which truth and justice is sought because that should be the investigation. They've been dogged, absolutely dogged over the years, haven't they, the family? I sat in a room with them in their house 
in the main street in Balahi over 20 years ago when I was interviewing family members for the book talking about the same issues that we now talk about in relation to the conduct of the inquest. Uh, their determination, uh, their doggedness uh, have been um, beyond compare in, in my view. And the the level of application and and courage that it has taken for them to stick with this for so long uh, uh, stands out as as a credit to everyone uh, connected with that family because the easy thing is to give up. The easy thing is to say, we can't get answers here. We move on. Well, they're not content with that. They have a they have a goal in mind, and and nothing up to this point has stood in their way. Can you explain the Legacy Act for us? What it is and just how it affects the Brown family. How long have you got? Um, <laughs> the Legacy Act uh, has within it a provision that any inquest not completed by the 1st of May of this year, and by completed it means at a point where a verdict is imminent and all the evidence has been heard, any ev- any inquest which gets to that stage simply stops. Full stop uh, no room for uh, equivocation in relation to that. It simply stops. Mm-hmm. And if this inquest, like other inquests, um, does not reach that point by the 1st of May of this year, then as the legislation currently stands and as it will be implemented, an inquest, no matter what stage it is at, irrespective of the gravity of what it's looking at, it simply stops. That has been the subject of uh much discussion, complaint, legal challenge, but that's the law. And that's the law within which the Browns and many other families now have to operate. You say legal challenge. Just last week it was announced the Irish government has formally lodged a challenge in the European Court of Human Rights. So I guess that just indicates how significant this bill is and the sort of strength of opposition from, uh, from the Irish government, also from all the major parties in Stormont as well. The one thing I would say is that It seems to have taken many of the main actors a long time to come to terms with the implications of the legislation. Uh, Any intervention is welcome, but in the same way that the legislation has imposed time limits and time constraints, those who seek to challenge it are up against time limits and time constraints as well. And in an ideal world, the interest that has now been shown by many different bodies, governments, organisations, if it had come earlier, it might have had even more impact than it hopefully will have now. There are some who are now taking an interest, did not pay adequate attention to that at the time. What does justice look like to the family days? We're going to meet a couple of members of the family now, so I'll talk to them about this as well. But in, in your view, what does justice look like? To answer that, I think you need to understand what they lost when they lost their father, uh, husband, grandfather. Uh, Sean Brown made the signs that are at the club 
He was a metal worker and he taught metal work. He made the flagpoles that fly at the club and he helped make and install the gates that are still at the club that have been named after him and which he was locking on the night that he was abducted. So that is how deep it goes and how deep and how much it should resonate for anyone who has any connection to the GAA. And that is what has been lost and therefore any question about what the Brown family seek from the process has to immediately reflect back on what was lost. So the quality of the justice that is obtained should match the extent of the loss. So therefore, um, any process in which they, like any other family, are involved should be the best possible process, should be the most fair process, should be the most wide-ranging process and should not be curtailed or stymied by any outside or extraneous factor. All the delays over the years, the wait for justice, what sort of a toll has it had on the Browns? It certainly hasn't deterred them because they will tell you, I am sure, we have had hearings in Belfast which begin typically 9, 9.30 in the morning. They have to travel over an hour. Every morning there's a hearing and without fail, every family member attends no matter how inconsequential the mention of the case is or how significant it is. They are there sitting, watching and listening and waiting for resolution. So the delay is now built in, but it hasn't deterred anyone. Tess Fahey, thank you so much. My pleasure. Siobhan, Damon, thanks so much, first of all, for meeting us to chat about your father in your case, Siobhan, and grandfather in your case, Damon. It's, it's great to spend some time with you today. Thank you. Tell us, first of all, a little bit about who Sean was. What was he like as a father, Siobhan? Um, Daddy was a great man. He was 61 years old at the time of his passing. Um, he was very helpful. He had encouraged us throughout our lives, through school, always on hand to help us learning to drive, etc. For the community, he uh, became chairman of the Gaelic Club after being treasurer for many years. He dedicated a lot of his spare time to encouraging the youth around Balahi. He encouraged the young underage teams, would have taken them to Croke Park for football matches, something that children maybe would never have the opportunity to do before. Um, he was always very involved. Any work that had to be done at the club, he was always there. Um, for making the turnstiles, he could have turned his hand to anything at all. Um, for his work then in uh, the Ballymena the Training Centre, he was an um, engineering instructor, bringing young people from school, um, learning the trade, engineering. Um, he always been sure that anyone locally who was attending that, who couldn't travel, he had a car load going to Balamina every morning, took them home again in the evening. He always dedicated a lot of time to helping the youth around the community. And he was just a great, outstanding individual that I'm proud to call my father. 
that's such a beautiful tribute. You used a word there a couple of times that he helped people. And that's a word I've seen in every profile I've read in the lead up to chatting to you guys. I've just heard, seen that word pop up again and again. It seemed to be at the core of what he was about. Yeah, he was outstanding. He would have done anything for anyone, no matter what it would have been. His neighbours, his elderly uncles that relied on him quite a bit. Um I don't know how he ever fitted everything into, into his life. He had his working life. He left that, come home, got his dinner in the evening, went out either football club, going to visit his elderly relatives, anything around the local community he was involved in. Uh, whenever we attended secondary school, he was on the Board of Governors. He helped with fundraising committees. He just was a, an all-round good individual. Damon, as a grandfather, what was he like? Yeah, well... Uh, between him and my father, he taught me everything I knew. I know. <laughs> uh, my younger years spent with Siobhan's daughter, Emer. We were through into the back of the car and took her into the club every evening. Kicked football and helped doing get ready for bingo, dancing classes, uh, everything. So he, he every evening there was something different. You were at. You're there was nothing. That was a long time ago now, but it's. You'd never forget them things. We're here at the Seamus Heaney home place, Siobhan. Sean was the man who organised the big celebration when his friend Heaney won the Nobel Prize. That's correct, yes. That was a, a great event and Daddy made sure, made sure it was a cross-community event as well. They organised an event in the, the clubhouse. They invited um, people from both sides of the community um, and the surrounding area to attend that event and it was really, really well uh, received. Uh, there was also a presentation made to Seamus of a painting of Loch Beg, which is quite close to Blahi here. Um, Seamus Heaney had actually penned um, a poem in relation to that, the strand at Loch Beg, so the, the church island, and he was really, really appreciative of that. Um, again, a great night and a great source of celebration. Yeah, Seamus Seney made that point that the most important aspect to him from that night was that it was attended by both sides of the community. And that help that you talk about that he gave, that crossed borders, crossed boundaries, crossed communities. He, he would help anyone, Protestant, Catholic, whatever it was. There was a poem wrote by his next door neighbour. Um, at the time, it was actually read at his funeral. She was a Protestant. And everybody, every Protestant in the town, every, from both communities, loved him. They was sort of the pillar of the community, if you such. Was that your experience of him as well? Yeah, totally agree, totally agree that the majority, um, as mum and daddy, where they live at, um, they're both the Protestant neighbours on either side of them. So that was just the community, just everybody got on well together, hadn't a bad word to say about anyone, um, just got on and anybody that needed anything done, no matter who they were, would always have came and asked. Um, that's why it was such a big shock when Daddy's life was taken from him. Can we talk about that shock and what happened that night? You were there on the night that, that the match took place. Yeah, the I, I got uh, scolded for throwing water balloons that <laughs> night. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's that night, the guy, he took me around to the club to, to the football. Um, I think Daddy was playing. And he then, I was with him and, uh, well, I, well, Mammy came and took me home and then just the next morning I got up. Mammy woke me up to go to, woke me up. I put the school uniform on, didn't know, and came downstairs and Mammy says, I wouldn't, you're not going anywhere today. 
we hadn't heard right at that time. And then Claire came down to ours, and then then the phone call came in. That was that was it. Where were you when you heard from? Um, I obviously didn't live at home. I was I had my own house, and I was going to work that morning. I worked in Belfast, and I'd heard it on this. I think it was the seven thirty news in the morning. Um, on my way to Belfast to say that um, a man's body had been found close to the start of the M2 motorway in Belfast. First thing came into my head, I'm, that's the way I'm travelling. How am I going to get to work? I then described the man and it said it was someone in their 40s. Drove a red Sierra car, described in detail what the person was wearing. A pair of brown boots, pair of jeans, a rain jacket. And I knew in the back of my mind, because I'd seen Daddy the night before at the football match, I knew he drove a red car, a red Sierra car, and I knew that was a description of what he was actually wearing that night. Something came into my mind, but he wasn't in his 40s. So I went on to work. The road wasn't closed, straight on into work. I wasn't in work any length of time until I got a phone call. Do not dare leave the office. Someone's coming to get you. And it was a horrendous shock. Something I'll never, ever forget. Um, My uncle and a cousin of daddy's arrived to the office to take me home. They had gone to the Foster Green Hospital to identify my daddy's body. And then they called down to the office to pick me up to take me home. And again, it was the longest journey. Um, We came into the end of Randallstown because at that stage they had closed the road. And we did ask can we go down to where it had happened? And they said no, very abruptly. Um, I just remember driving into Balahi and going into the house and all these people and my mummy and daddy's house and horrendous experience. And it was a long week. That was on the Tuesday morning. He was killed about 11.30, 11.35 on the Monday night. So that was on the Tuesday morning. Um, his body wasn't released to the family until Wednesday evening. We didn't have his funeral until the Friday. And it was a really, really long week. Is it possible to put into words the, that week and the devastation felt by the family? Um, surreal. Absolutely surreal. Didn't think it was real at all. Couldn't believe it. Um, I think we were just going on adrenaline. It just a blur, everything just one thing day in led into another and to another. And I remember my uncle, daddy's brother was in Australia and he came home. That was his first time home in Ireland for quite a number of years. And I remember standing at the top of the stairs and seeing him coming through the front door. And it was just devastating. The uh, the strength of feeling around Belahi must have just been incredible at that time. But as a family, you pleaded for people to be measured in their response, to that there be no retaliation whatsoever. I'm just kind of curious where that kind of magnanimity in the maelstrom, the adrenaline that you're talking about there, where does that come from? I think it's a case of you wouldn't want that to happen to anyone. Um, I remember another family who had lost a brother um, Aidan Akinespe was shot down close to the border and they came to Daddy's wake and I remember one of the sisters saying to me you'll never ever forget them you just learn to live with it and that's basically the mantra 
since, you'll never ever forget what has happened. It's been a long, long time, but you just learn to live with it. Damon, that detail that you told us of waking up, putting your uniform on, getting ready for a normal day at school, unbeknownst to you, your world is literally about to change in that moment. Yeah, it was... I can remember that. I remember that morning like yesterday. Uh, and I was young. Like, I was nine. Um, I remember like yesterday. It's just one of them days in your life that you never forget. Um, changed everything. Changed routines. Changed life. And it's just it's hard to forget. You'd never forget it. The police ombudsman's report in 2004 found that the investigation into the murder had not been efficiently and properly carried out and that no earnest effort was made to identify the persons who murdered Mr. Sean Brown. How difficult was that to hear at the time? I suppose it came as no shock, to be honest with you, because it had been ongoing. There was very little information was coming right throughout the normal course of the police inquiry. Every now and again, you would have heard of someone being arrested and then they were released and then it just sort of all died to death. Um, there didn't seem to be any concerted effort at all to make any headway about finding out who actually had murdered my father. You know, even looking at things now and looking back in the Ombudsman report, it's something that they did their best at that time because the, the police Ombudsman's office had just hadn't long set up at that particular time. It probably was quite new to them as well. They've done their best and they released that report. And yes, they said that there were failings in the investigation into my father's death. But it just sort of reiterated all along that nothing had been done throughout the course of the inquiry. Uh, the family received an apology from the PSNI on the 25th anniversary for, uh, as it said, inadequacies in the RUC original investigation. Is an apology like that, is that a source of satisfaction or, or comfort to the family? Not really. It's it's just a remembrance that they didn't investigate it right. It was flawed from the start. There was never going to be any convictions with if you're lost in material, then you're lost in evidence and evidence gone missing. How could you ever convict anybody? Uh, so it's, yeah, they can apologise, but it doesn't do you anything. It doesn't change anything. It's not going to It's not going to convict anybody. When you talk about evidence going missing, what are you talking about there, Damon? Well, the occurrence book from the Blahay uh, RUC station uh, went missing. It, no one knows where it went. There was uh, cigarette butts that were lifted from the club uh, that were in freshly tramped grass across the road from where the, he was captured. Um, there were cigarette butts found in Ralstown where the car was burnt out. They went missing. DNA wasn't was a thing at that time. Um, the there was films with the cameras and tomb. It uh, used to be an army barracks, a checkpoint. Um, we were told at the time it was turned off, but there was actually, and we were told that they didn't record, but there were actually VRP cameras, uh, which were number plate recognition cameras. Um, that's and. Um, this all come out to light and maybe in the second investigation. The current inquest started last March. Not much headway is being made, though. Is no, that fair to say? No headway whatsoever. Just the PSNA will not... The PSNA and the... just won't give over the sense of material. And like it's, it's taken so long. Like we've been waiting on that. It's been going on months. 
the the inquest started obviously last year. Um, and we had hope that that would take off and it would be a start of it and things would progress quite quickly. It was difficult for my 86-year-old mother to take the witness stand at the opening of that inquest. First of all, she had to sit through the detail of how my father lost his life. Um, she then took to the witness stand and went through and gave her witness ed- evidence at the start of that um, inquest. And it was difficult for her and it was difficult for the rest of the family to sit and listen to that as well. Um, and that was our hope that we were going to make some progress. But every time we were called back to Belfast, it was a case of, no, the material's not released. No, the material's not released. And deadlines were kept being reset and reset for um, the PSNI and the MOD to release the material. And Justice Kenny was setting quite strict um, deadlines for this, but it just seemed to wash over them because the next time that we went back, we were just listening to the same old story again. So here we are nearly a year after the inquest opened and we're really no further forward. Are you very worried at this stage that it's it's not going to get finished yeah, in time? The clock is going to be wound down and that's that? We were give a, we we were actually supposed to be in the middle of the inquest, an eight-week inquest at the moment, um, but it was put back to March um, to start again. But it is going to have to happen. If it does happen in March, it would have to happen very quick because um, we wouldn't have the time to go through all the information. But we think it's just a complete stalling tactic to kick us down the road and shut it down. There have been these public community interest certs placed, state agencies have placed these PIIs on certain information. These are certs that are used by security services to withhold information they consider to be sensitive. So the argument on that side is that this is sensitive information that that, ca- that can't be released to the public in this forum. Is that right? Yes, they believe that uh, the information, it would be in the interest of public security if that... Uh if that information was released, um, that it would be damning um, and it could cause potential issues. What are your thoughts on the Legacy Act? It's brutal. It's completely wrong. It's a breach of your human rights. uh, Everybody is entitled to an inquest. Every family is entitled to an inquest from the loss of a loved one. And it's just shutting down, like... We're, we're just a family that wants about it wants to hear the truth we're, we know we're not going to get justice but we want to hear the truth and it's just shutting us down from every legal avenue possible just on that you say you, you don't think you'll ever get justice but you you feel truth is attainable and something you can get if we got truth it would it would help but we'll never get justice for some reason there's that much evidence that's been lost and there's there's no way to get prosecution from the evidence we have. Can you just differentiate between that? Like, what do you what do you define as justice, and what do you call truth? Truth as in what happened that night, uh, who was involved, or who is suspectedly involved, who done it. Even there has to be local sort of influence around uh, Mud Ulster, um, just names and. Just who motivations? Yeah, just who who motivated it, and it's just for motivation as well for us. Just to why why it was 
why why it happened? Why did it have to be him? That's the question my mother always asks. Why him? Because daddy was an individual who went about his own business, wasn't involved in anything political in any way. He would have helped anyone to do anything. And it was evidence from the outpouring of grief after his murder, the amount of people that came to the wake, who came to the funeral, um, the messages of support throughout Ireland, across the world. Um, and the big question is, why him? And I think that is really what it boils down to. Why? Why did they pick on him? Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland Secretary, when the bill passed through the Commons, he argued the passage of time means the possibility of securing a prosecution for a troubles-related crime is negligible. Compassion and commitment to truth and accountability is the only way we can move forward in peace, bring understanding and reconciliation for the next generation and enable Northern Irish society to look forward. What do you say to that? That's okay for Brandon Lewis to make that comment. Um, It's the families that have been affected by the troubles that are the ones that are suffering because there's lots of other families in the same position as ourselves who are not going to see the truth come out. They're not going to see the inquests. They're not going to see anyone brought to justice. We understand that they may never get a prosecution, but at the end of the day, we just want to find out why and how it happened. Um, It's okay for someone sitting in Westminster looking at this and saying, move on. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of families can't move on because it has happened to them and it's still really, really raw. raw. What's your answer to that, Damon? I saw you just sort of shaking your head in disgust at the quote. In my eyes, uh, Brandon Lewis, has he lost anybody? Like, who's he lost? He doesn't know what it's like. He can decide whatever he wants, but if you're living in the shoes we've lived in, you want to stop. You want the truth. And that's not going to be possible after this. You don't feel that th- this independent body that's being talked no. about is a- an avenue that's going to be helpful towards you? No, because um, it's, it's, it's not, you'll not get the full truth with that because people will not come forward with to tell you the truth because that's what they're asking. You can't, like, with a coroner, a coroner can tell somebody to come to court hmm. with this they don't have to like if, if a coroner is sent for you to go to court you have to go to court if this if this truth recovery if you're asked to go you don't have to go what are you calling for now then Siobhan what would you like to happen next really ideally we'd like to see the the inquest brought to a full conclusion that the inquest to resume again that the information is out there to the family, to the legal teams to be able to go through it and for Justice Kenny to actually make his decision, um, conclude the inquest as should be done um, by the end of April. I know the Chief Constable has um, indicated that the route to go is a public inquiry. At this stage, that's something that's not within his remit to call for a public inquiry. Uh, Ultimately, that sits with the Secretary of State. Um, We don't know. Obviously, we keep on going um, with the inquest process and we'll follow it through until we're told that that you can no longer continue with this route, either because there isn't any sufficient information there or the information that is held cannot be released um, because of a matter of national security. 
um, and the coroner will then make his decision to say he cannot then proceed uh, with an inquest. A public inquiry, uh, as as mentioned there, the BSNI indicating that they would be open to such yeah, an inquiry. We would be open to a public inquiry, but at the minute we want to see our inquest finished. Um, yes, if the coroner does indicate he thinks it's best for a public inquiry, we will support it. But at the moment, we're driving for to get our inquest finished. Um, the chances of a public inquiry in this country is very slim, very very slim. Um, unless maybe the coroner, well, that would be unless the coroner advises us that that's what he thinks should happen, and because John Boucher, the new chief constable, has ad- has told us that he thinks it should be a public inquiry. That might give a bit of a steer towards, if we've them two people that thinks it should be a public inquiry, that we might get it passed. Do you feel you've had the support of the GA community during all of this? Yes, without a doubt. Um, they've been very good, um, and especially in more recent times, because we are good through the, the, the process of the inquest. Uh, we've had attendees from... Um, our local Derry County Board and the Ulster Council attending one of the preliminary hearings with us in Belfast to show their support. Um, we've also now met with the President-elect, Jarlith Burns, um, and he gave us some great reassurance that he was prepared to not let this go down and he was going to address it. What do you think he can do? Um, like, what can, the, what can he personally or what can the GA do to help you now? I think the GAA is a big, a big organisation and they've got a lot of support throughout Ireland, throughout the world. And I'm hoping that they'll be able to use their influence to help t- this process. The image of the last man out, you know, the, the fellow who locks the gates at the end of the night is an exceptionally powerful image, I think, for for GA members, everyone knows that person in their club. Yeah, he, that's, as he said last night, he said that every time I lock our club gates, he locks his club gates on a Monday, I think he said. Uh, every time he locks his club gates, uh, he thinks of Sean Brown. He thinks of what happened that night through every club. Every club has a person that locks their gates, so it could be anybody. You have a very poignant quote, actually, from the club, from Balahi, along those lines, Siobhan. Yes, the... Uh club raised or issued a statement just prior to Christmas and one of the final points that they made within that we asked each club member in Ireland as you are locking your club gates in the evening consider if the same thing were to happen at your club would you accept this sort of treatment for your family your community is this how you would want your memory to be treated Damon we should say very sorry for your loss of your father as well a couple of years ago sounds like he was a real key figure in, in fighting this fight for a long time, as Siobhan says. Yeah, he uh, went to he went through the whole second investigation, pushed the pushed through it all, uh, done all the was involved to follow through for the police ombudsman investigation. Forty, I think forty odd primary hearings he went to on his own with uh, Paul O'Connor from the. Um, Finucane Centre, which is a great man. He, the two of them, travelled 
up and down to Belfast every maybe twice a month or once a month every month and they it's just the the stress on himself he never told us he was very father was a very quiet person but you knew when he came in from a public inquiry he was just or not a public inquiry a, a hearing that he was just pissed off how would you know that if he wasn't telling you that you knew by his expression <laughs> his expression he would, wouldn't have said much he was just annoyed that there was nothing happening and it's like what's it all for but you knew what it was for it was for justice do you ever feel like giving up never Doc, there's many a day you walk out and you think what is this all about but you brush it off your shoulder and you just go on and you just keep doing it and you just have to keep doing it because you'd be letting too many people down if you didn't have you same question to you Siobhan have you ever just felt like this is this is too much I need to take a break from this I need to maybe it's better just to leave this for now there have been times when you come out of court and you think again what's it all for and it can be quite intense especially when you're running week after week but you know at the end of the day yes you just brush that off have that thought for a minute a fleeting minute and then you're back again to the next time you go back again and we're determined to see this through have you been able to get on with your own lives live live your lives experience the kind of joy you're supposed to experience at happy moments all those things despite having this obvious hole in, in your lives yes to a certain extent you do it's always in the back of your mind as i said earlier it's one of those things that you'll never ever forget what happened you just learn to live with it and you take life whatever comes your way and deal with it as best you can and try and protect those ones around you your mum in particular, I mean, how, you've mentioned her a few times now. How tough has this entire 27-year process been on her? It has been tough because mummy and daddy were like soulmates. They'd always been together. My mother never drove. My daddy had to take her anywhere she wanted to go. Um, they would have spent many um, a holiday in the south of Ireland. Um, and that was a big shock to her because she didn't have that soulmate there. And yes, the rest of us always try to sort of slot in and take her here, there and wherever she needed to go to. And it has been hard. It has been hard on her. Um, she's had a lot of good friends around her throughout the years. It's difficult. It's difficult for her at the minute. It's difficult, I believe, the day she went to court and had to listen to the details of how my father lost his life. Um, and it does, it does tire her. It does. But she's determined to see it through. Can I just ask you one more question about Sean as a person before we wrap things up? The Club All Ireland has obviously come back to South Derry this week. We were just up the road in Connor Glass's cafe yeah. where the, the trophies are on display, the Derry title, the Ulster title and the, the All Ireland. Whatever, whatever about the Derry title, would Sean have been happy to see that? Would he have been up at their club celebrating? Or yeah, would, would, would local rivalries have run a little too deep for that? <laughs> he didn't have rivals. He didn't have razor, rivals. Every club was the same to him. Yeah, his, his love was Blahi, but uh, he would support every club. He would have been the first boy up to congratulate them. He would have been, he would have took a car load up with him. <laughs> yeah. He would have, to support them. It's just a, a dairy team, he would have supported them all. You think so, Siobhan? Yeah, definitely would agree with that as well. And if he had been here, he probably would have been in Dublin as well. Because mm. he was very fond of attending matches, no matter where they were at. And that would have been the same throughout his life, even with school matches, college matches, anything that any of the family were taking part in, he would have been away um, at. So, no, he would have been there in the midst of it all. You guys, I really appreciate you t- talking about all that today. Like, it's, it's tough stuff. And I know you've obviously had to go through this 
a million times over the years. So thank you so much. Given the place that we're in and the connection with Seamus Heaney, Heaney did compose a poem. He wrote a poem in honour of Sean Brown, which you have with us today, Siobhan. Would you yes. like to read it out? I will indeed. The Aegean Stables, my favourite bass relief, a thing showing Hercules where to broach the river bank. With the nod of her high helmet, her staff sunk in the exact spot, the Alpheus flowing out of its course into the deep dung strata of King Aegeus reeking yard and stables, sweet dissolutions from the water's table, blocked doors and packed floors deluging like gutters, and it was there in Olympia, down among green willows, the luster wash and run of river shallows, that we heard of Sean Brown's murder in the grounds of Blahy GA Club, and imagined hose water smashing hard back off the asphalt in the car park where his athlete's blood ran cold. We've just walked a few hundred yards away from the Seamus Heaney home place and we're just just on the outskirts of Belay now. This is a, a turf man. It uh, was made by, it was dedicated to a poem written by Seamus Heaney. And there's the tree there, oh, yeah. and the plaque. And why would you have chosen this? But the, the plaque has the poem. Not the, the, um, the stone there. Has the poem on the back side of it. Yeah. It can sit on the bench. And this, this plaque here was um, it was presented to us from the Blahy Wolf Tones. Do you mind reading what it says yeah. there from Seamus Heaney? So, Sean Brown was a man of integrity and goodwill, qualities which are manifest when he presided at an event organised by Blahy GA Club to celebrate the award of the Nobel Prize to his particular Blahy man, Seamus Heaney. Why was this spot chosen, Damon, for planting the tree? Uh, if you look through the two, the two uh, houses there, you can see where that's where he was abducted at, and that actually looks that's that's that way. Grandad's house up there. Yeah. Um, just thought this is where he travelled every day, uh, to and from the club, from home, from work, or from the club to home every day. He'd up and down this road. It was not really the heart of Bly here. What were the emotions that day? The day it was planted? Yeah, it was... There was... A lot of people um, come out to show their respects and to celebrate the man that he was. Um, there was a lot of people here, so there was... There was the poem was read out by Stephen Ray, the actor... And then Larry McCarthy planted the oak tree. Um, and remember, sort of, that tree can go for you for many years. And then we also had Father Dolan, the parish priest in Balahi at the time, said Mass at the, the exact spot where my father was killed at, um, at the club gates just after that. And it was the most horrendous evening ever. Rain, rain, rain. And everyone stood out in the rain while Mass was gone going. And at that particular time, it was nothing to what my father had suffered on the night 25 years before that, when he was killed, that we had to put up with a bit of rain. 
Siobhan, Damon, thank you so much. Thank you. you. Well, this has been uh, an extraordinary day, really, being up here, spending time with Sean Brown's family. Our thanks again to Siobhan and Damon. Their dedication to this is just incredible. Yeah, yeah, and there's... um Oh, just the incredible power of it. Uh, it's hard to actually put it into words, really. Um, and to be up here as well, to meet them in Dublin, I think would be one thing, to, but to meet them yeah. uh, where this happened, uh, to meet them in their home place where this happened, I think there's, it's, it's a day I, won't, I don't think I'll ever forget it, to be honest. We contacted the Northern Ireland office to ask them a number of questions in relation to the Sean Brown case, including asking for a response to allegations that elements of the British state are deliberately holding up the current inquest. We also asked them for a response to allegations that elements of the British security services colluded with loyalist paramilitaries in Sean Brown's murder. A government spokesperson told us as the inquest is ongoing, it would be inappropriate to comment. That is it from us today from Balahi. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Owen. Thanks again. We'll talk to you again soon. Captain's world service. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to persuade us of the world outside of that. That's why sports is important. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.